episode nine of the Sin Essential podcast. This week we are going to be talking about In the Mood for Love. I am Sarah Gore, managing editor for the site, and with me today we have uh, Aaron Pinkston, as always. Hi, Aaron. <laughs> hey, Sarah. How's it going? I'm all right. Yeah, no. <laughs> I'm pumped. Whatever. This is fine. People love it. It's real. It's, it's been a it's been a long weekend. It's been a long weekend. Been a especially long for Sarah. Yeah. She's taken a lot of the, this world stuff hard. So you know, give her a break. It's, it's cool. <laughs> uh, but we have uh, we we uh, we cut we cut John out. He's out. He's done. <laughs> no, he went to Mexico. He, John went to Mexico. We're not we're not sure if he's going to be able to get back over that wall. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, anyway. He'll, he'll be back at some point, maybe. Probably. Uh, but instead, we have... Da, 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 introduce yourself, Alex. Hello. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I'm back. Yeah, again. that's great. Yeah, so um, excited to be here. Yeah. Good. You should be. I gave you a small trumpet sound, so that's fun. I know. I know. I, I think I deserved it, too. Yeah, I agree. Um, anyway, I'm really excited to talk about yeah. this movie with Thank you guys. You. Are you guys pumped? It's sure. like, it's February, it's, it's mm-hmm. time for mm-hmm. romance, we're getting yeah. to talk about this very romantic movie, um, which was my movie, which is why I'm trying to force you to say you're as excited about it as I am. <laughs> <laughs> this was my choice for the week. Um, I love this movie. I ended up watching it after, probably like most people, like after I saw Chunking Express and then everybody that I told that had seen Chunking Express was like, you have to see it in the mood for love. And I was like, okay. Um, and then it completely blew me away. Um, I love it. Like, I love it a lot. I, I love it so much. I'm re- re-watching it. I bought it. <laughs> so I was like, how don't I own this? Um, mm-hmm. But uh, you guys came, maybe came to it a little differently, especially Alex, who this was your first viewing. Remember? Yeah, absolutely. This was definitely the first time I saw it. It's actually the first um, Wong Kar Wai movie I've seen. So. Oh, wow. Yeah. Gateway drug. Gateway drug. I know. I know, I know. So, uh, yeah, I'm definitely excited to catch up with Junking Express after this. What about you, Aaron? How did you end up seeing this movie? Yeah, so I've, I've seen it a few times. Um, I don't really remember the first time I had saw it. It probably was just, like, a lot of uh, highly regarded films of the time. I mean, I definitely didn't see it when it was in its initial release, but would have seen it at some point um, on digital video disc. Um, getting getting and then, film school <laughs> with these big terms <laughs> video desk. Uh, I, I did see it though when it came around on uh, on a theatrical re-release. I'm guessing around the same time it it uh, came to the Criterion Collection because that happens often. Um, that would have been I think 2011, 2012 or so. I saw saw it at the uh, Gene Siskel Film Center downtown Chicago uh, when it came through with my wife. Uh, at the time was my girlfriend and, uh, it's, it's great. I mean, if you've never, I, it's hard to see a lot of old films and movie theaters these days, but, uh, if you ever get the chance, that's, this is, this is a good one to see for sure. Yeah. I can't imagine seeing this on the big screen. I feel like that would just be like, my brain would explode. It'd be too beautiful. <laughs> it's true. It's sensory overload for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, I don't know, Alex. Do you want to talk a little bit about uh, how you felt like on your first first watch, first watch? Yeah, maybe ab- first watch absolutely. Wonka Y. 
Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, I, you know, I really, uh, I'd heard about this movie. I didn't really know all that much about it um, for whatever reason. And when I watched it, I mean, I, I really loved it. I thought, you know, it's just unbelievably gorgeous. Um, and uh, also the the story, I mean, it's just, it's, it's kind of, in a way, it's a fairly simple, although non-traditional love story, but it's also sort of infinitely complex because of the, the performance of uh, Tony Leung and Maggie Chung. I was just very impressed with the whole thing. I, I actually watched it uh, a couple times over the last week and, you know, it definitely rewards a, a rewatch. So I, I'm, I'm excited to watch it again. And I really do hope I get a chance to watch it uh, on the big screen sometime. I'm really jealous, actually. Yeah, me too. Damn you, Aaron. Um, yeah, I mean, this, I mean, I guess, uh, quick for, I guess the people that, you know, haven't seen it yet, or, um, just as a refresher, uh, the basic, basic plot is incredibly simple. It is two neighbors, um, in 1960s Hong Kong, uh, discover, and I guess if you, you know, want to watch the movie, stop listening. Spoiler alert, um, the two neighbors discover that their spouses are having an affair with each other. So then they begin this sort of uh, platonic relationship that kind of evolves from there, from like bonding over their pain of um, their spouses sort of betraying them. Uh, so, I mean, like, that's, that seems like pretty straightforward. Like, oh, uh, spouse cheats, cheats on you. You guys like each other now. Like, that seems like that should just be, that could be trite, that that could be maybe even boring, honestly. Uh, but it's none of those things. <laughs> it's just none of those things at all. And uh, there's, I think what we should talk about a little bit, because um, there's a lot to talk about with it, is getting into some of the, the production design, cinematography, like all of the things that are sort of going on in this. Because one of the things that is not really going on is a whole lot of dialogue, or honestly, a whole lot of people on screen uh, there's right. a lot of lot of time dedicated to either silence or the soundtrack itself, and often even just like completely empty space, like empty rooms. Like you, it's you're almost like, how on earth am I riveted watching this? What is clearly <laughs> a wall. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I don't. Uh, I guess I want to ask, um, what sort of struck you, Aaron, for you on your rewatch? Sure. Is there something that like sort of uh, drew your eye um, a little bit more this time around that you that popped out for you? Yeah. So I mean, it, it's not really any different than the first time I saw the film, but uh, this is possibly the the best costumed movie ever made. <laughs> I mean, everyone in this film just looks. They just look spectacular. I mean, they you have Maggie Chung and Tony uh, Tony Young, who are already two of the most beautiful humans ever, and then you basically just like sheath them in <laughs> like the cloth of the gods. Yeah. Uh, and it, I mean, they're they're just irresistible uh, to look at. So Maggie Chung's all of her fantastic dresses in particular, which are these sort of kimono like I imagine they're like all silk maybe. They have these you know, they're sleeveless but they're, they have like a like a neck sleeve, like, like a turtleneck thing going high, on. Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean it, I, I imagine that um, I mean I wouldn't doubt that people in the, in the, in the period 
would dress like that, but it's so different than, you know, West, you know, Western clothing, um, anything that people would wear today. Um, that it, I think it really puts you in the, in the mood of the time and of the place and sort of, a along with that, there's, um, so I saw this documentary that came out last year called the first Monday in May, um, which is an okay, it's not a great documentary. It's, it's, it's fine, but it's about, um, the Met every year they do like a huge fashion exhibition, like through history. Uh, my wife has known about this forever, I guess it was the first time I, heard of it, but, um, a few years back they did, uh, their sort of focus was China and to be the, um, sort of the, the artistic director of this exhibit, they, they brought in who else, but Wong Kar Wai. Um, that's amazing. Good choice. And yeah, (laughs) so, I mean, you, you see this movie and I think, I think you can totally understand his, interest in the way that people look and um not even just through the cinematography but just literally what they're wearing uh is an important artistic piece for for the film at least for his films and i think every every movie kind of thinks about that i mean every movie has a costume designer or costume director but there there may not be a there there are very i would say there are very few films that make it such an emphasis as I think I I agree uh because it's so much more than just uh oh it's set in the 60s in Hong Kong so we should have everybody wear 60s Hong Kong clothes like it's a lot more than that because um Maggie's character Sue is very much wearing um like a uniform the all of her dresses have the exact same cut which like if you have met a woman uh that is not usually what we do (laughs) we don't only buy the exact same dress in varying patterns um but aside from some dresses having short sleeves and some having no sleeves it's it's basically the same dress it's the same length with the same kind of collar in all of these different patterns and there's even a moment in the film where her um her neighbor slash landlord, um, whose name I forget, Mrs. Suen, I think. Is that it? Did I say that right? Her her landlord notes that, like, she's wearing that to go to the movies? Like, being like, she's yeah, really no, dressed yeah, up. Yeah, I think like, it's to go looks, get noodles. Right, yeah. like, she wears that to, yeah. go, to go get noodles, you know? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Like, the, it's saying right, something because... specifically about her character as well, which is you know fantastic because you're you can't stop looking at her and you can't stop looking at what she's wearing so i love that there's like this layer of purpose to it right because these are ostensibly like middle class people right i mean Mm -hmm. they're not they're certainly not rich i mean they're i'm sure it's more of a cultural thing than i understand but the basic premise of the film is that they're renting out rooms in people's apartments you know these two these two couples so i i'm guessing that was a a common practice in Hong Kong at the time, especially since there's not a lot of space, I imagine. Um, but, you know, these aren't wealthy people, but the way they dress is uh, extraordinary. Alex, let's get, you, uh, let's get you in here. If you want to talk more about costumes, obviously go ahead. But if there was something that uh, jumped out at you, like when you were watching this, like something about the production design or, you know, whatever... I, I mean, the uh, certainly the costumes were remarkable. I mean, it's it's amazing that I I, I kind of want to uh, go to uh, just 
uh, Maggie Chung's wardrobe and just see how many of the same dress in different colors are like arrayed. You know, it's like right. <laughs> that, that thing where you go see a movie and, and there's like 30 white shirts in some guy's closet and it, you know, indicates that he's like a totally straight laced dude, but she's going to have like a hundred like super colorful Chinese dresses there instead. So yeah, I'm going to steal um, literally all of them. I, I think watching the movie, the, the thing that struck out at me, I mean, the, you know, when I was writing about this movie, like words like sumptuous and, <laughs> you know, uh, it, you know, that kind of word, you know, gorgeous and, you know, those kind of like luxurious, those words just kept like falling onto the page. And I was like, you know, clearly this is, you know, the the sensation that this movie is giving me. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of that does really have to do with the production design, although not all of it. And, um, you know, I, I think it's remarkable. I mean, his use of color is just, it's very stark and beautiful and, and kind of luxurious. His, his use of, uh, you know, just framing things. There's so many frames in this movie where he's just framing things and other things, having like obstructed, you know, foregrounds and things, which mm-hmm. is just absolutely gorgeous. Um, and uh, on top of that, I just, I don't know. It, it's just an unbelievably gorgeous movie. And, you know, I don't mean this in a bad way. I At some points I felt like I was watching like a, a good perfume ad, you know, like those, <laughs> those ads where like a woman is like wandering around doing something like, don't understand but it's unbelievably gorgeous like it, it just felt kind of like that um, all we needed was just Brad yeah, Pitt voiceover I, exactly so yeah I, I was I was super impressed with it. it I mean and the other amazing thing about it is just watching this movie it made me sort of realize the beauty of you know pretty ordinary things right and that's something I found kind of remarkable about it you know you're, you're looking at these sort of dingy uh, Hong Kong alleyways and you're like my god that's beautiful or you know smoke right to the ceiling and you're like I've mm-hmm. seen cigarette smoke a thousand times but I don't think I've ever seen it like this you know yeah. so you're also like usually um, I, yeah very impressed and instead I'm just like oh my gosh look at it curl <laughs> mm-hmm. um yeah I definitely agree with all of that like it's there there was a I apologize to the writer of this piece who's definitely I'm sure they're listening um, but I can't remember whether it was from the Dissolve or the TV Club, uh, where they said that there's, you know, that phrase, like, oh, you could watch, like, that that actor, you know, is so good, like, I could watch, it's just like watching, like, I'd watch, like, paint dry, like, and I'd be riveted to it, like, I would watch them do anything, I'd watch them read from the dictionary, and it'd be like, yeah, mm-hmm. amazing, mm-hmm. and they're like, that's the sort of director that they kind of feel like Wong Kar Wai is, and I was like, that is so apt for this movie, because, like, I was kind of getting into a little bit before, is like, all of this negative space, all of these empty rooms, like Alex, you pointed out, there's all of these like obstructed views. There's like something is happening and instead you have like a curtain or some bars or like a window in the way. And you're just like, this is just amazing. Like, I don't even care that I can barely see the actors doing anything on screen. But, like, <laughs> it's just so beautiful. And I'm so into this. Like, oh, look at this empty cup. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm just like glued to the screen. Um, and so, uh, um. Oh, go ahead. <clears throat> oh, I'm sorry. It, it is interesting. Um, you know, Wong Kar Wai's uh, props guy um, is is a guy that, um, just speaking of production design, is a guy that seems to have followed him through his whole career. And he's in, he's actually in the movie. Um, he's he's that, that weird bald guy that, that keeps oh, talking God. about prostitutes and <laughs> <Okay>. sex. <laughs> that's, that's his prop guy. Uh, oh, wow. That's nice. good. So, I mean, it, I, I think he must have a very close relationship mm-hmm. probably with his art department that that follows him through you know that they really they must know really what they're looking for 
Um, that makes a lot of sense because I feel like a lot of his like everything that I've seen of his so far, there's like just so much attention to detail going on. Um, and something mm -hmm. that I wanted to get into a little bit changing gears, but what the thing that popped out at me a lot um, was the soundtrack, where there's has like I think there's maybe a couple extra songs, but there's honestly basically like four songs in the movie that get, all get played with one exception, like a bunch of times. Um, mm -hmm. The first being the, uh, the sort of classical string piece, uh, Yumeji's theme, um, which I think was originally written for a different movie, but then I don't think that movie actually happened or not. So I don't think it's like taken from that movie, but it wasn't actually specifically written for In the Mood for Love. Mm -hmm. Um, but that song is like, it, that is like, if there was a score for this movie, it would just kind of be just that one song on it for like 15 tracks because of how often it pops up. Right. Um, well, and it, and it pops up in sort of really interesting mm -hmm. places in the film. Like pretty much any time that song is used, it, it, it becomes like this, like this, these like slow motion montages. Mm -hmm. Uh, there's a particular look that happens any time the song comes up, which becomes like a Pavlov, Pavlov's dog sort of uh, response in the viewer. Like every time the song would come up, I just I, I would know that I need to to really like fully take in everything that was going on in the screen. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it, it's a like a really simple, beautiful song. We, it's a song that I feel like I've heard like in a million different places, but I'm not sure if that's actually true or if it's just such a memorable song that when I revisit this movie five years later, I feel like I've heard it a million times since then. Um, it has a really strange effect like that. Yeah. Um, so the, the other two songs that I spent a lot of time sort of listening for and kind of thinking about um, were the Nat King Cole songs, which I think... So I think there's a lot going on with the movie in terms of like things things that are being alluded to, things that are being sort of explicitly stated without being stated or explicitly like shown without being shown. Like it's like you know what's happening, like you understand what's going on, but Wong Kar Wai is not just like, oh, I'm just going to show you, like they're just going to have a conversation and like talk about how their spouses are cheating on each other. It's like, no, we're going to have a five minute long scene where they're going to talk about ties and handbags. And you're going to know what it means. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> but, like, I have this other layer over it. And so all of these Nat King Cole songs are in Spanish being played in this, like, 1960s Hong Kong movie. So, like, if they were in English, that would even be one thing. But the fact that they're in Spanish is just, like, really fascinating <laughs> to me. Because, like, English, an English song being popular elsewhere is, like, of course. But, like, the idea of this Spanish language song uh, being a theme in this Hong Kong movie... I, I like got kind of obsessed with thinking about it. And then I ended up looking up the lyrics and discovering that the main theme is uh, quizás, 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 which is perhaps, perhaps, perhaps. And if you've heard it in English, you've probably heard like the Doris Day version in like other movies, older movies and stuff. Uh, and I found out when I was reading about it that the English version is not a translation. Uh, it is new lyrics to the same tune that are supposed to be sort of the same idea. But I got I, what I thought was really interesting is that the question being asked in the Spanish song, the one that actually appears in In the Mood for Love, is every time I ask you, 
like when, how, and where, you always say perhaps, perhaps, perhaps. So his questions mm-hmm. are about like everything, like wh- when, how, where, and in the English version, it's just, do you love me? Like they don't, it doesn't ask the, in the same way. And I feel like that's really important because I feel like the questions and in the mood for love are a little bit bigger than that. It's not just, do you love me? It's sort of this like whole questioning of like everything and getting no, getting no answers to any of those things. Not just like, do you love me? But like, like, you know, when and how and where, like all of these other questions, just being like, not getting an answer from them. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you guys had thoughts on that or if you were noticing the, the, the music as well, but, um, yeah, I just like, I, could, I couldn't stop replaying the song. I couldn't stop reading the lyrics to these songs. I could stop thinking about all the ways that like it would specifically fit into this movie. I know this song from the, an English version of the song as the theme song for a British comedy called Coupling, which is sort of the people known as like the friends of 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 english comedies uh which is a great show i think it's been on netflix for a long time it might not be there anymore but uh definitely a different vibe (laughs) than uh than in the mood for love but anyway uh go ahead alex I think one uh, interesting thing about the music uh, is just, you know, it is so evocative in the movie, you know, I mean, you were, Aaron, kind of talking about a Pavlov's dog reaction, but it's it's just really, really sort of fitting with the mood. It really creates the sense along with the visuals. And uh, one interesting thing is that Wong Kar Wai apparently, uh, you know, when he was making this movie, they didn't really have a set script or anything like that. They made it over 15 months and and sort of you know, just figured it out as they went. But one thing Wong Kar Wai apparently did is that when the couple was sitting and talking about stuff, he wasn't exactly sure where the scene was going, but he played them some of this music and be like, this is what I want the scene to feel like, Mm -hmm. you know? So it kind of makes a lot of sense that there would be a lot of sort of connection, you know, between the music and the emotional uh, resonance of things going on on the screen and things like that. I just thought that that was a fascinating process and it kind of creates this interesting... Uh, very strong mood in the in the film. Um, I think that's a good way to kind of segue into talking about uh, the rela- the core relationship in this movie. I don't know just how how atypical of a romance this really is, despite the fact that I mean, even me like having seen it and in my mind, I was like, this movie is like it's romantic to me in my mind. And then you watch it, and you're like, it's very romantic, and I'm very sad. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but Alex, did you uh, want to think a little bit or talk a little bit about? you know, how you viewed the relationship or how you felt like the mood was tying into the, the way Wong Kar Wai wants this relationship to be sort of experienced on screen? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, this this movie is, is so fascinating in this relationship, uh, partially because, you know, you have these two people, the, the, the spouses of people that are cheating on each other, and then you have the, the, Just a bunch the spouse... Of yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then you have, uh, you know, the two spouses that are cheating with each other that you never actually get to see. And yet they they uh, sort of, you know, cast a shadow over this whole thing. Mm-hmm. And the fascinating thing to me is, you know, there are several scenes where they're sort of acting out what their spouse must have been doing or thinking when they started cheating and mm-hmm. or you know asking the other person to pretend they're the spouse to to sort of practice asking him whether you know he's he's got a mistress or something like that and to me this was such a fascinating relationship because it's it's so complex right you've got two people 
that are sort of kind of, you know, in love with each other, but but don't want to admit it. And then they're pretending to be two people that are in love with each other to, you know, yeah. figure out what they're going through. Um, and on top of that, the way Wong Kar Wai does it, he makes it intentionally confusing a lot of the time where, you know, he'll repeat a scene a couple of times. The first time you're like, what what is going on? Are these people actually doing this? And then he reveals that they're actually pretending. And as a first watch, it's, it's very confusing in a good way. But I, I just thought there was so much depth and, and interesting stuff going on. I, I'd love to watch it, you know, a hundred more times just to, to suss out some more of what, what's psychologically going on and how they're feeling and things like that. It's just my, my favorite time that that sort of dynamic plays out is a scene where they're at, a, they're sitting at a table uh, and you can only see the Maggie Chung character's face. Uh, the Tony Young character, you see sort of the back of his head and um, it's a scene where Maggie Chung, Maggie Chung is uh, confronting her husband uh, on finally confronting him and asking him if if he's cheating on her. Uh, and then he finally admits, um, well, not really finally, the point is sort of he, he admits really quickly. Uh, and then all of a sudden the, the total perspective on the scene flips you you see that it isn't her husband that you might have that you might have thought it was mm -hmm. that it is um that it is tony leung and and then they sort of deconstruct like for for basically the second half of the scene you know on on how he would how he would respond and like you know you're doing it too quickly and and and, and all of this it even though that that is like the third or fourth time we see them in this sort of play acting mm -hmm. game it's still able to to kind of trick you at first, at, at least uh, on, on what's really happening, uh, which I mean is is a total sign of of the filmmaking, the you know the the way that we're invested in these characters, the way that the scene is being shot, the way that dialogue is is being read, um, all of that it, it it has that effect that that keeps you um, keeps you kind of guessing and not not exactly knowing for sure what's going on. Yeah, and I, I like that moment as well because that's when um, uh, Sue, Maggie, Maggie Chung's character sort of um, breaks down when he, you know, her fake husband, you know, her neighbor in mm -hmm. this place pretending to be her husband admits that, you know, of course he's been cheating. Um, and she like is just shocked that it hurts this much. She's like, I didn't think he would admit it so quickly, even though she's clearly known at this point for what seems like it must be months. Uh, yeah. at least what we've even seen on screen and probably known even long before like that. So who knows how long this has been even going on at this point, but a long time. And so I just like that, the, the, that framing of sort of like being, being surprised at your own feelings in this, well, uh, sort of like in this, in this culture, in this time period where like letting that out in a public way would be sort of embarrassing where you'd want to be right. more controlled and restrained and like keep yourself together. And it, you almost get the sense that that's why she's practicing. Like she doesn't want that to happen whenever she presumably has this conversation. She doesn't want to like, she doesn't want to cry like this, not for him. Yeah. And there, there's another point and I think it's just a small little thing, but kind of plays into this. There, there's a point where um, they're, they're together in see if I can totally remember how this plays out. But um, there's a there's another character who is sort of outside of, of the relationship that um, they, they she she suggests that he can just pretend that he is 
her husband because he doesn't know, you know, uh, he doesn't know who her husband actually is. She's never met him or something. And, um, uh, and he's, I think he's sort of unwilling to do it to kind of bring their game out into the world, you know, mm-hmm. um, to bring it into uh, bringing another person into the game. It, it's, it sort of shines a light on maybe not how ridiculous it is, but it becomes more real then, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't, I apologize. I don't know if I totally got the, the dynamic there, right. But it's something to that effect. Uh, and it's really just a small moment. They don't, they don't, it's just like one or two lines of dialogue that it kind of comes up, I, I believe. But uh, anyway, yeah. Um, something else I kind of wanted to get into that uh, presumably you've, Everyone's already read about, because I talk about it in my uh, scene analysis, where I feel like uh, the something really interesting about this relationship and kind of what brings them together, even more than just the the pain of like all oh, our spouses, you know, they're together instead of with us, um, is the way Wong Kar Wai like so subtly and so like expertly like weaves in this thread that lets you know that it's not just that. But it's the fact that these spouses do not care that they know. Like, they are not doing a good job at all of covering their tracks. Like, Mm -hmm. they're neighbors. They see each other all the time. And then right before the the scene that I talk about in my analysis, um, where they go to the diner and they finally, like, admit this to each other through asking about, like, oh, where did you get your handbag? I want to get it for my wife. And she has to pretend, like, she doesn't know or she like sort of pretends that she doesn't know that yeah I, your wife has this bag that I know my only my husband could get and yes you have the same tie that like I know only you know your your wife could get for him like blah blah, blah. like that's how we know that they're cheating uh, right before that she's at work and without a lot of like pomp and circumstance it's pretty clear that uh, Sue's boss has a mistress. Um, and they do this little scene where she's like, oh, she knows that's your birthday. She called, so she left you a present. So she knows you, she won't see you tonight because it's your birthday. So you have to go out with your wife and he like opens the <laughs> present and it's this tie. And without like making a big deal of it, like he puts the tie on and Sue is so like, I really like your tie. And he's like, wait, wait, what do you mean? You, you notice it? It's a lot like the old one. And she's like, you notice if you pay attention, this like sort of subtle burn about this tie, like, Yeah if your wife sees you all the time, she's going to know if you have a different one. Um, and then at the same time, like it flowing into the fact that like her husband has this tie that he wears every day in front of her. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just like, wow, that is cold, man. <laughs> like that is just so cold. Like how dumb do you think your wife is? Like, obviously right. she knows she didn't buy you that damn tie, idiot. Like, yeah sorry the cruelty, yeah, the cruelty I, of that moment like how how he does it without like being explicit or like having somebody give this weird monologue about like oh i i knew that blah 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 or like having it be this strange student that it's all like super restrained and it just makes it hurt even mm-hmm. more mm-hmm. i think that's the great thing about the the performances in in this movie is that they're just so restrained and and so quiet most of the time and for me, uh, especially because of the way that Wong Kar Wai kind of, you know, has his camera sit on their faces, uh, that came out wrong. But, <laughs> um, you know, we s- know what you, fr- mean. <laughs> you know, stay, stay, you know, stay 
put on their faces for a long time, you know, it really gives them a lot of room to express themselves very clearly. Or, or the, the scenes where they're having a conversation, but the camera will just stay on one of them, uh, one, one party of the conversation. I, I just feel like he gives them so much room to be expressive while also being restrained. And that's mm-hmm. one of the great strengths of this, because... You know, you could imagine this movie being like way overacted and and just just like melodramatic and awful. And instead, it's just like this quiet portrait of of two people that are in some ways, you know, just kind of in despair. They're they're lonely and and don't know what to do with their lives in a sense. So, yeah, it's just beautiful. I think they do such a wonderful job. Why don't we um, speaking of their relationship, like. Let's get into kind of like the meat of the end of the movie a little bit. Um, Because the final scene in this movie is something that I think I have thought about on occasion on and off for about uh, five or six years. I just think about it sometimes. (laughs) It's like one of those, it's one of those scenes that has just sort of like lodged itself in my brain. And every once in a while, like, I'm just like, ah, the end of that movie was so good. (laughs) Um, so for some, for some context, and again, obviously spoiler alert, but, you know, basically the, clearly the, the relationship between the two, it's, you know, uh, Chow has gone to Singapore. Um, Sue doesn't go with him. She doesn't make it to the hotel like they agreed upon in time. She, she stays behind. Uh, we see that she has a child. She, that she seems to be living alone. Um, so it seems like she's probably divorced. Um, well, we're told that uh, he asks who lives in this. He goes back to the dear, mm-hmm. their apartment, right, yeah. at some point and sort of stares at the door and asks um, who lives there now. And the person says, oh, a woman and, and her son right. is, is all, the only information we get. So, yeah. Right, yeah. No, so uh, the my, my thought being that they're, they're, I mean, I don't know how it works in 1960s, you know, Hong Kong or China or whatever, but, like, when divorce was sort of taboo, mm-hmm. the couples just living apart as if they were divorced without getting the paperwork done. Yeah. Um, that's, so, I mean, so totally but, but anyway, the point being that, that they're basically, they're not together. Um, yeah. And we have this like terrible, <laughs> tragic moment where when he sees like, oh, it's a, it's a woman and her child that can't be Sue. So he leaves. At least we like that's what we can assume. He thinks that it's it must be somebody else because it's not her and it's not the old landlord either. It's some some new person, but I don't know. And so mm-hmm. they don't ever reunite. But then the final moments of the film are in Cambodia, with him at what I think is Siem Reap, um, one of the famous uh, like Angkor Wat maybe, like famous ruins out there. In yeah, Cambodia. that's that's is that right? That's where he is. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, and like earlier in the movie, he is tells tells the story about you know he heard about how I think it's like monks or something that hollow out a hole in a tree and whisper secrets into it and then fill it with mud, and it's sort of like comes out of nowhere that he's like thinking about this, <laughs> but that's more or less what he ends up doing at these these temple ruins in this like super quiet moment. He's there's a, there's a monk watching, and he's alone. Uh, and he whispers something that's completely inaudible. You don't know what he's saying into like the the whole of this temple. And but as the camera pulls back, we see that it's filled, packed with mud and grass. And then like the movie's just sort of over. <laughs> like 
I don't know. Uh, did you guys have like a strong sense of like what you thought was going on or like what you what do you think was like the key thing to sort of take away from this moment as like this is like the final moment of of the movie? Well, I mean, it's it's sort of uh, an interesting way to, to end the film. I mean, it, it Wong Kar Wai sort of changes a lot of the aesthetic of the movie and, and really like what it's what maybe like the last like five minutes of the film is shot and directed in a totally and presented in a totally different way than the rest of the movie. Um, I don't know if it was just sort of a, a necessity on, on how he wanted to get the film to the end, but all of a sudden you have a lot of text on screen and a lot of jumping in time and jumping in place. And it's a little, I mean, it's, it's a little jarring. Um, and, and not necessarily in a bad way, but I think that it, it becomes so different at the end. I, I always kind of, I feel like I, it's, it's something I, I would need to watch about 10 more times to totally get the right context of, um, because I think, you know, I, I'm put in such like a hypnotic, you know, uh, haze throughout the, throughout the film. And, and then it, it really kind of just, it, it really just kind of, rear ends you at, at, at the end. But anyway, I, Alex can probably say more <laughs> more intelligent things about, about the end of the film, so I'm going to let him do that. Um, it's actually funny. When uh, Aaron was like, and Aaron, go first. I was like, oh yeah, thank God I'm not the first one going. <laughs> oh. But uh, I still need to say something. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the ending was, again, I it, I watched it twice. So the first time I watched it, I was actually a bit confused by the end because I was just like, what what is happening? This the, the whole pace of this thing changes. And, you know, I mean, the whole the whole film has a sort of timelessness to it. And in, in, mm-hmm. well, not timelessness, but like a flowy time thing going. And at the end, it's still there, but but it changes location so fast. And so much happens in the last 10 minutes or so compared to the rest of the movie that it does leave you really confused. But I, you know, I think in some ways, especially the last section at Angkor Wat, uh, I found to be, um, you know, just a lot about um, the, again, just like everything else, the feeling that that evokes, right? So, you know, Angkor Wat to me, it's it's someplace that is, you know, just so far away. He's somewhere just in a different place uh, than he was before. It's like a different part of his life almost and he's you know I think that he, he's sort of reflecting back on his his life but he, he can't quite see it the way it was anymore like there's that quote that comes up on the screen something about how he's you know looking back at his life through a dusty window pane and can't quite make everything out anymore um, and I, I think that sort of having this last part take place somewhere so far away, like Angkor Wat, just uh, both geographically, but also sort of visually and, um, you know, things like that, it, it, it really sort of uh, makes the, the point that he's reflecting back, but he's kind of losing it. And, and then finally, you know, whispering into that hole, I, you know, I, 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 I'm very tempted to play this game of like, what is he whispering in there? Um, you know, you know, Wong Kar Wai must've had a thought on that, but I, I don't know. I mean, I, it's something to do with his past, but I, I need to watch it a whole bunch of times and think of it a lot more before I figure that out, I think. Yeah, and, and I mean, with with anything, I end up taking the uh, the sort of simple approach of if, if I was supposed to know, I would know, and it doesn't matter yeah, what he's saying. Absolutely. Um, um, not not like saying that it's, it's wrong to be curious, because obviously, like, 
I want, is he talking about Sue? Like, what is he sad about? Um, but, uh, I like, I like that there's a weird sort of sense of, like, acceptance that it's not, like, it's like this, it's this thing, it's this weird gesture that suggests some sort of attempt to move forward. That suggests, mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm, it's, mm-hmm, like, a, mm-hmm. some kind of bizarre way to sort of say goodbye to something that never existed and, and probably will never be. Um, instead of it just being, like, you know, somebody, like, looking on the dock as the ship takes off without them, like, ah, and right. the credits are all, like, it's this, it's more of this thing where even though we don't really understand it, and, like, I feel like the fact that there's this monk that's watching this happen, like, is, like, weirdly comforting, that there's this sort of, like, I don't know if I want to say benevolent or something, but, like, this, like, peaceful presence is, like, watching this occur, um, like, I, I, yeah, I don't know. I'm, like, running away with myself because, like, like both of you guys, like, I, I have some sort of half ideas about what I feel like is going on that I, I don't have the smart person words to get out mm-hmm. of my mouth. <laughs> well, one, one thing I, I, I did think was, you know, uh, he he does evoke, like, a very strong mood of mystery in that last section, sort of, and, and heaviness. He changes up the soundtrack a lot. He um, it, It's a very sort of interesting music choice i think um and then he also has all these scenes where the camera's just gliding through angkor wat um through all these ruins um and and it it does just sort of emotionally thematically fit even though i can't really put my finger on why yeah i think generally one of the worst things that romance films uh do wrong uh is to pretend that the very normal, you know, everyday kind of people in their movies when they break up, that it's like the worst thing ever. Um, and is like some sort of un- unrevocable sin that they the world can't let them be together. Uh, we talked about this in, in our discussion of La La Land. We don't have to rehash <laughs> that, Sarah. Um, but, but yeah, I think this is another movie that sort of kind of gets it. I mean, it's a bummer that these two gorgeous people couldn't have uh, couldn't have had a different path, but like it's you know it, it's just their lives, you know their their lives will change their their lives will um, uh, you know, there's no indication that uh, Sue has been like torn apart by by them never coming together, uh, never consummating their relationship. Um, and, you know, so I, I think that while that sort of ending might be unfulfilling for some people, depending on what they're looking for, um, that it, it always works better for me, I think, when, when there's more of this sort of pragmatic kind of approach to, um, to relationships and romances not, not working out, because most don't. Yeah, and I think that there's um, something to be said for the fact that, like, whether you know like i said like we we talked about there's not a lot there's not a ton of dialogue there's not a ton of or really any like monologuing about like all these are all of my feelings and blah 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 Mm -hmm. i'm gonna cry about them and it's gonna be this very melodramatic scene but like i feel like the way things sort of happen is like we get can kind of get the impression that there's some sort of like wistfulness of like oh what could have been but it's not in this way where it's like my life is over because both of them seem to have pushed each other to do the things that would be better for them. Like instead mm. of just sitting alone, like had they, you know, 
had knowledge that their spouse was having some kind of affair and they didn't know with who and they were completely alone in that feeling like we can, I think we can both like we can all imagine that they might just just stay married to those people forever and never deal mm-hmm. with it and just be like well this is my life I it sucks and I guess this is just how it's going to be and instead we see like you know Chow is like moved away he's taken this position with his company like elsewhere he's trying to like start fresh he's really trying to separate himself from these things that were painful for him um sue has this you know she has a child her look is completely different in this way that feels more relaxed and less like she is putting on like putting on a face which maybe was a little bit what that uh, costuming decisions were earlier where she has this like very beautiful very proper very dressed up like her hair is done like all up in curls and at the end of the movie it's, yeah. it's down she looks a little bit more like you know like a, like anybody on the street instead of just this stunning like vision like i mean obviously Mm -hmm. she's still beautiful because she's maggie chung and that's you know that's her face (laughs) but you know we get a sense that there's something that's more relaxed that she feels like she has a family and she's just doing you know what she's gonna do with her life right now and i just there's just this sense that for neither of them is it is it too too bad where they're at when i think it's it's interesting you know i think we can we can kind of move on at some point here but um because we never see their spouses, we hear we hear some things that, that they say, but we never actually really see their relationship. Mm-hmm. There's really no indication that they're like any happier or like any more fulfilled in their lives, you know, because of this affair that they're having. Um, I mean, in fact, the, the the time that we hear the wife, you know, her the the way like the the tone of her voice and when she there, there's a part where Maggie Chung comes to Chow's, um, uh, knocks on the apartment door, and her husband is there, but is kind of hidden. Um, like she doesn't see, they don't. I don't know. There's just something in in the in the light and reading that she has that just kind of marks them. I think is they're also just kind of just as lonely, just as like unfulfilled in their in their lives, even though they do have this sexual romantic relationship that that the other two don't um there's sort of just little touches in there that i think really project a lot in terms of the the fulfillment of of what the audience wants to see from their relationship and how it it you know depriving of us of that doesn't necessarily mean that if we did have that it would be any more glamorous or any more uh happy or romantic or anything i think it's i don't know that it's an interesting sort of dynamic there yeah and so i feel like we've sort of covered all of this the the sort of entirety of what this movie is which means i think it's a good point to kind of get into some of the incredibly high praise it's received since it's come out because i think it was pretty uh well critically well received uh initially um but as I think Alex was pointing out, uh, people have actually called this the best movie of the 21st century. <laughs> so that's uh, that's pretty intense. Um, I don't know. Why don't we Why don't we get into that a little bit? Uh, whether it's deserving of that that title or how we could even suggest that it might be so early on. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So um, the uh, the 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 list. Uh, in quite, it's on several lists, but but it's also you know the most notable thing is that it is the highest ranked film 
from 2000 onward on the uh, sight and sound uh, list of, of best movies of all time. And, um, that, you know, that's really high praise. It's ranked at number 24, which is uh, above Rashomon and right below uh, The Godfather. <laughs> Um, and so when you hear, you know, when you hear that it's at that position, you're kind of like, wow, this movie was made, what, like 16 years ago now? And it has just that high uh, reputation. That's that's absolutely incredible. Um, you know, and as I was thinking about it, you know, you got to think, is this like a sort of fad kind of thing where just a lot of people saw it? And so it ends up on a lot of lists or is this just really that good? Um, mm -hmm. And for me, I, you know, I, I think it's it's in contention. Uh, you know, it's it's certainly one of the better movies from the 2000s up there. When I uh, actually look at the list of movies on the BFI list, for example, the, the sight and sound list since 2000, it's it's clearly one of the best uh, on there. I mean, there are certain ones you see on there where you're like, ah, I think that'll probably go down or that'll probably go up. This one, you know, I could see it sticking around somewhere fairly high on the list for a few, few more rounds. This list comes out every 10 years. So, you know, we'll see in uh, about five years what happens. But, you know, I could see it being fairly high. I don't think it'll stay at 24. But um, at the same time, I was kind of like, this movie is so good. What do I care what position it is on this <laughs> list? Like, it's just so good to watch. You know, I want other people to watch it. I think um, when I was writing my piece, where I really came down on it was kind of like, yeah, it's really good. It might stay up there, but I don't really care. What I really care, like the reason I care that it stays on, on this list is so that more people will watch it, you know, in the future, right. because it's just really worth it. And it is really like sort of a, I think a special, special movie. I mean, an unusual vision that, that you don't get in other people. So there's a, there's another list that I've, I've used for a long time. Um, a website called they don't, uh, they shoot pictures, don't they? Um, which has for like 10 years compiled just like hundreds of critics' top 10 lists, lists like the sight and sound list, and, and um, sort of has a formula that they use to um, to uh, list what they call the thousand most acclaimed films of all time. Uh, and just like the sight and sound list in The Mood for Love is the top uh, 21st century film. Uh, it comes in, I just looked it up, it's number 50 of all time, so a little lower, I guess, than the sight and sound list, but they also have a separate list of the, the best films of the 21st century, and it's been number one on that list ever since they started to, to put the list together um, through all of the revisions. Uh, number two on that list is Mulholland Drive. So yeah, I think it's, it's interesting, and kind of what like Alex was saying, like the idea of putting together like lists like this, not not even just like your top ten of the year. Um, I mean, they're they're kind of so arbitrary in so many ways. Like, you know, everybody calling Citizen Kane the greatest movie ever, and then all of a sudden Vertigo is the greatest movie ever. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, perceptions can change, and sort of cultural context can change the way we look at movies. I mean, that's part of the really the, the main reason we, we we have this site in the first place um but when you're talking about like they're different things you can have a preference but there's no there's no like formula that you can like computer program you can run through a film that like awards at points for certain things you know like it's it's so in a lot of ways it is arbitrary but 
when you're anointing something the best of something, it it does mean something. So in the mood for love, having that reputation and having that distinction, um, it is something that is worth, I think, uh, uh, recognizing and talking about. Um, Sarah, what, where, would, would, where would you place in the mood for love on, on sort of a 21st century list of films and, and, you know, what are your thoughts about it? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I agree with you. Like it's, it's, it's hard once you get into like these lists that are supposed to encompass like everything. And then all of the gaps in them are so obvious. Like there's all of this like emphasis on Hollywood films instead of world cinema and like, all these things that were like, oh, this means this is great, and this means this is not great, and this has this many awards, like, blah, blah, blah. So mm-hmm. it all just becomes, like, none of that ends up mattering, but, like, all that ends up, like, making us any kind of difference is, is how, for how long people are still talking about it, how long people are still returning to it, how long it's still, like, when you go back to it, do you feel like this is great, or do you feel like this is just a movie? And I think that, like, at, you know... 16 17 years for in the mood for love and like it's clear it's in the canon like i don't think that is a question anymore like i i don't know where it would be on a list i mean i definitely would put it up there for the 2000s i'm like sort of lazily looking at this like greatest movies of the 2000s and there's a lot of stuff in there where i'm just like hmm hmm, i don't know if i'd put that on the list (laughs) like a gladiator huh all right (laughs) It's a fine, fine movie. Avatar. Yeah, sure. Okay. <laughs> but, uh, no, in, in the movie for love is, is just, it's got, it's this little earworm or whatever. That's just sort of like, it's, I'm in, infected with it in a gross way. Like I can't stop thinking about it. I, it's in my brain, like things remind me of it. And there's just something that feels really, really special about it. And it was like, I, I watched Chunking Express and I was like, blown away i loved that movie uh by watching this next i was like oh i want to see everything Wong Kar Wai has ever made like that, mm-hmm. <laughs> that was like i watching those two back to back i was like oh he's a genius like i i can't believe that this person is this talented like i i don't know i'm gonna like i like like i tend to do wandering away from the question at hand <laughs> just to sort of babble about how much i like it but um yeah, I mean, I, it would it ranks up there for me. It ranks among my personal. The only list that matters is my favorite movies, and it is in there. <laughs> That's where it is for me. All right. Yeah. Well said. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we got some we got some cool stuff coming up in the in following weeks, uh, which I think Alex can speak a little bit about. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So uh, next week uh, we are covering with Noel and I, um, and. I don't know how familiar familiar people are with this movie, but it's kind of a cult classic. I think it's actually more popular in uh, the UK than it is here, but it is uh, a cult classic comedy. Um, and uh, it's just one of those movies that uh, is unbelievably quotable. I think it's just, it's just hilarious. It has a lot of great quotable lines. And, uh, you know, I'm just uh, excited to see uh, what people think about it. Uh, I know we have some interesting things coming up about um, the, the nature of the, the comedy as well as sort of comparing it to some other sort of uh, buddy 
road trip like movies and, and things like that so yeah i'm very excited about it aaron do you have anything else you yeah no about it's it? um i just recently watched it for the first time uh to to write about it for this so it's a film i had heard a lot about and was familiar with which seems to be different from sarah's uh relationship to with Nell and i but uh yeah, i just it's googled very... it right now so now i know what the plot is <laughs> good yeah it's very <laughs> strange it's a very weird kind of movie um i'm still really kind of putting together my thoughts on it so um you'll you'll kind of see what i totally think about um the film's work as a comedy uh next week when the piece is up but it kind of it's reminiscent of things but is like a totally unique thing in in its own so uh yeah it's a good pick i think uh hopefully it's something that people who are interested in in the film check it out uh i think it's in it's in the criterion collection right so uh, so i know that boosts its profile a little bit and yeah and then uh our next podcast i believe should be again the following week uh we're going to talk about m which is one of my favorite movies of all time uh it should be a lot of uh disturbing fun that we can have with that one um uh it's uh if you don't know it's a fritz lang film from 1931 uh right after the turn of sound cinema it's one of the uh i think in my opinion it's the first masterpiece of of uh the sound cinema era uh and the way it uses sound is, is really interesting and uh, it's uh, Peter Lorre being a creep, <laughs> being a child murdering what? creep. So <laughs> Peter Lorre being creepy. Yeah, uh, especially so in this one. So um, yeah, that'll be a lot of fun. We got we and we have more coming up uh, throughout the next few weeks. You can see all of the films that we'll be covering uh, on the website at uh, Essential. So uh, yeah, do that. Yeah, uh, take us out, Sarah. Yeah, I just wanted to add that I am excited that we are going to be talking about a comedy next week. I don't, aside from Home Alone, (laughs) I don't know how much time we've spent on just straight comedies. So uh, I think we should do more of that because laughing is fun. Yeah, it is kind of a dark comedy. Yeah, I mean, they're pretty. It's not exactly a laugh riot, but (laughs) it's more about people drinking themselves to death. But (laughs) it's fine. Okay, well, that's going to do it for us this week. I really enjoyed talking about In the Mood for Love with you guys. And thank you, Aaron. Thank you, Alex, for being here today, talking about this with me. Um, I hope you liked it. Sounds like you did. Uh, Thank you to the Hemingbirds for the use of our theme song, as always. Uh, And that's, that's it. See you next time, guys. All right. Bye. Bye.